we're looking at this book for, for our, those who are our guests. And it's called Christianity and Liberalism. It's by J. Gresham Machen. It was published 100 years ago in February. So it was February 1923. I put that in the notes here. Uh, that, it was, that it was published. And what Machen is trying to do is say there's something going on in the church here in the, in the 1920s and before um, <clears throat> that though it uses the language of Christianity, it isn't Christianity. It piggybacks and it uses the forms of Christianity and talks like Christianity is talked. It really isn't Christianity. And so he went through in the first chapter on doctrine and just kind of looked at the way teaching itself, the the concept of teaching, the way that the teaching of the church goes um, is different between liberalism. And they call it liberalism. And that's, I should take a second to, to mention that. So, like, we, we'll talk about liberalism in any, in any number of ways, right? Can you think of different ways we use the word liberal or liberalism? I think maybe I did this before, but just throw a couple ideas. When you hear the word liberal or liberalism, what comes to mind? Sure. Usually it's politics, and usually it's left-wing politics, if we, in the United States anyway, although we kind of spread that out. Um, we say, okay, well, liberalism, what's the, the, you know, the root of liberalism is liber, libertas, liberty, or freedom, right? So liberalism tends, at least, you know, that's the, that's the idea, is it's toward freedom, but I think as we find the political left, uh, we find that that's a misnomer. It doesn't really tend toward freedom. It kind of has the guise of freedom, and it actually tends toward bondage. Uh, but most human thoughts tend toward bondage. But a lot of human thoughts aren't called freedom, like liberalism. So that's the strange kind of confusion part. So we're not, so we're not talking about political theory, whether it be kind of in the current situation. Um, of, okay, we have liberals and conservatives, or progressives and conservatives, or left-wing and right-wing. We're not talking that way at all. Uh, and just for my part, I prefer to call liberal liberals in the current political sense progressive or lefty or something like that, rather, rather than calling them liberal because they're not. Um, they might be progressive, progressing towards something, uh, and they might be lefties, which just means on, on the more progressive side of the aisle. But anyway, when we're talking about liberalism, especially 100 years ago in the church, we're not talking about the same thing, right? We use the same words, but we don't mean the same thing as time goes on. So the modernists, or that's one word for them, or the liberals at the time, 100 years ago and, and before that, like I say, got into the churches, used church language, but didn't mean the same thing about what they were teaching. Uh, they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't really believe that Jesus came back from the dead. They say things like, you know, Jesus is resurrected in our hearts, and the spirit of Jesus is alive in us, or things like this. But they didn't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, because no one comes back from the dead. You know, so the Apostle Paul had the same kind of problem when he preached, and there weren't modern liberals around. Right? There are ancient unbelievers, just like unbelief in the modern world would match that. So these modernists or these liberals would take things like miracles and say, yeah, these are great stories, but of course they didn't really happen. Uh, essentially, they want to de-supernaturalize Christianity. They want to make it a natural type religion that fits in with the assumptions of, of science as understood 100 years ago and things like that, and be modern about what they're doing and not, be, not, not even be perceived as those who would be you know, mouth-breathing rubes who actually believe the Bible because it's just an ancient document like other ancient documents. And after all, we're modern people now. We know better than all this. Okay, that's the, that's the rationale, really, of the modernists or the liberals, liberalism. So they come along, and there's lots of money in the church. There's lots of power in the church. There's lots of authority and gravitas to be a minister in the church or a bishop or something. Um, and so they want to hang on to those positions. They want to hang on to the money. They want to hang on to the institutions that are wrapped around the church. Um, 
even if they don't believe anything that those institutions had been teaching for the past, you know, couple hundred years or whatever else. And any just kind of questions on that orientation, just to kind of make quick sense of, of what Mason's trying to put his finger on that and say, look, here's the examples of what modernism teaches, and here's what historic Christianity teaches. They're not the same thing. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're diametrically opposed, right? They're doing the, just, they're going the opposite direction. Okay, so that the, the, the topic we look at this morning is the Bible. Okay, so the first question on the sheet there is, what shall we think about the book? It's an interesting thing to think about. We kind of take it for granted, don't we? I mean, I think as Christians in the church, coming up in the church, we take for granted this book. We take for granted that this is God's book, that God wrote it, even if he had human authors write it, which is the plenary inspiration thing we're going to look at as it's in there. Um, we take that all for granted. But at some point we do, each of us, have to stop and check and think, okay, well, what's going on? Are, are the things that I think about the Bible really what the Bible is? Or has the church lied to me? Or have I misunderstood things? Or, or any number of, of ways it can kind of go sideways on us. And so it's good for us to take a moment, even just along the, the lines that Machen lays out, and just think about the Bible. Think about this book that God has given. So I'll follow Machen as we go here. And I certainly want you to ask any questions or make any comments that, um, that you know come to mind as, as we go. So we'll be looking at chapter 4, which is on page 59. So in his first actual chapter, his introduction chapter, then his first chapter he talked about doctrine, this kind of long chapter, about just the nature of teaching in the church and how Christianity is historically um, doctrinaire. We, there's, there's a basis of teaching and understanding from which we operate as Christians. Uh, the modernists were saying, well, we don't really need to know God or know about him. We have to have feelings of dependence and various things like that, but we don't have to know God. In fact, there really is no knowing God when it comes down to it um, on the liberal side. So he had that doctrine section. The third chapter, this is the second topic, was God and man. Saying the liberals talk about God who isn't holy and probably who doesn't maybe even exist, or if he does exist, we can't really know him. But historic Christianity has talked about the true and living God, the Holy One of Israel. Um, and then conversely, then, when it comes to the doctrine of man, the modernists kind of think, well, you know, maybe man, man being mankind, humans, are fallen. Maybe, maybe they have issues and problems but that's really, not, that's really not the problem. That's not what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on something positive and move forward this way. Where historic Christianity says, no, it's square on, face the problem, human sin, before holy God. That's the problem. Everything else flows out of that. And so historic Christianity recognizes God as the holy one, the judge, the righteous one, and that man is sinful. That's the God and man chapter. Okay? So we move into the chapter on the Bible, and he asks the question, well, where do we get this information anyway? As Christians, where do, how do we understand that God is God, the Holy One of Israel, and how do we understand that we are wicked and debased really before him, and we have nothing to offer before him, and that we're entirely condemned in ourselves as a starting point for grace? He says, well, the place we learn about this is in the Bible. Right? It's this book that teaches us these things. So he mentions that you can, you can find a lot of things in the, in the Bible that you can also find elsewhere. Right? You can find wisdom in the Bible that you can find elsewhere. Kind of, you know, think of the wisdom literature, think of the Proverbs, and how many of them are, are just kind of truisms, faithful truisms for life. How life is, how things work, how money works, how the mouth works. Some of them are tied in quite obviously to Yahweh and his revelation and so on. Other ones you can, you can find in other 
in other uh, scenarios, in other situations. They would have like think of an example of something like that. Whereas nothing, there's, there are a lot of things in the Bible that aren't particular to the Bible, though they are revealed in the Bible. But there are things that are very particular to the Bible that aren't revealed anywhere else. And that's kind of what he's pointed, trying to put his finger on right to begin with. So can you think of something that other, other religious traditions or other philosophical traditions uh, would, would, would think that the Bible would say, yeah, that's, that's the case. Anything come to mind? He doesn't give examples in here. I'm looking for your examples. Yeah, Nathan. So, oh, I see. So, other historical, like, recountings of things that happened that the Bible also recounts. Totally, right. So, you can find historical records that talk about the same thing the Bible talks about in history. That kind of stuff. Think about, um, beyond, beyond historical events or those kind of details, um, what about just kind of wisdom or something like that, yeah? So, the concept of karma, that, you know, you reap what you sow. Okay, Sure. Uh, so what you know the world God's made the world in such a way that what you do comes back to you okay, he's made it that way so you can call it karma if you're looking at it in the godless sort of way but you can recognize that they're, they, they, they're seeing something in that doctrine of karma that is something the Bible uh, has something similar to say you know about that uh, how about the simple reality that they get, like my atheist friends who are like this we didn't need the Bible to come tell us not to murder we already knew it you know kind, kinda you kinda already knew it um, I mean, I look through history, and I think there are a lot of people who think, I shall murder, right? I'm going to go ahead and take a lot of life and make my thing happen. Um, did they need the Bible to tell them that? They sure did, and everything else. So, but, but you can look to any number of religious traditions or philosophical traditions or just kind of humanistic traditions and say, yeah, murder is frowned upon. We all think it's bad, right? The Bible does tell us that, but other traditions also tell us the same thing uh, because we're made in the image of God and in the world that he made. And God's given men wisdom. And they can see things and understand things. Okay, and that's important for us to understand as Christians. It's like we don't have the end of all truth, right? The humans are made in the image of God and, and have various access, I think, to, to truth and, and, and living uh, wisdom as well. Yeah, Kim? Yeah, kind of on the same line of what you just said, Lewis C.S. Lewis calls it the Tao. It's this, it, um, that all, it's, universal, that everybody has the And that's, that's kind of a, like an ethical centerpiece of all, Christian, of all human existence, right? We're all made in the image of God, therefore we all have the sense of good and wrong, evil, right and wrong, wickedness and, and so on. That's, that's built into us. I remember listening to two professors debate. One, a great professor of mine in college was kind of fun. He wasn't really my professor. I sat in his classes sometimes. Daryl Almondson, fun guy, um, debate, um, I don't know, some, some professor, and, and the professor that was the atheist wanted to say that because the right and wrong changed with culture to culture, that there was no commonality about it, missing the entire point that there was right and wrong in every culture. But that's the commonality, right? not, not the details, although they're, they're interesting too, um, because you get weird stuff, anyway, but the very fact that we have right and wrong, we all agree that, that those are categories that we operate in and that are important, not just individually, but in society and so on. Okay, well, there you go. That's, you know, call, call it the Tao. Um, call it the, the nature God has put in us, made in his image, which is, I think, closer to the revealed truth, but everyone seems to have that, right? So what's in the Bible particularly that's important that isn't found elsewhere? Sure, and thinking about particularly what Machen has said, so the... the He's, the Bible 
gives us all kinds of information you can get elsewhere too. But it gives us the information particularly about Jesus and what happened. Okay, he wants to make the point that the gospel is something that happened. Right? It's an occurrence. It's something that occurred in history. It happened. Okay, that's the idea there, the happening. And, um, and so you get that here on page 60. Um, salvation, then, according to the Bible, is not something that was discovered, like men didn't look around and say, oh, here, look at this, we found this, uh, but something that happened. Hence, it appear, hence appears the uniqueness of the Bible. All the ideas of Christianity might be discovered in some other religion, yet there would be in that other religion no Christianity. Right? So you can look at Christianity and say, oh, there's all these bits and pieces that make up the whole view of Christianity, and you can find a lot of those elsewhere. But when you're looking elsewhere, if they don't have this happening, they have no Christianity at all. And the happening is the incarnation of God the Son, and his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Okay, we're going to try and move quickly here. So he, he, he wants to say the Bible represents to us this occurrence, this the happening, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ of God. And, and you might say, well, that, that happened back then. Have you ever thought about this? So Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven a long time ago. Right? It happened in history. There were people in history that saw all this. In fact, to be an apostle, you learn to take the, the place of the, the twelve anyway, uh, you had to be there all through Jesus' ministry. Right? When they replaced Judas, that was it. They got to be here from his baptism all the way through the resurrection and be able to witness to all of that. That's what it takes, one of the things it takes to be an apostle. Well, are all apostles... Are you an apostle, Claire? You're not. And you weren't there. So what gives? How do we, what's the connection point to this historic event, or collection of events, in, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and us? It's worth thinking about. That's an interesting connection. Now, the liberals, and this is what he gets at here, say it doesn't matter what happened 2,000 years ago. That's not the issue. The issue is that Christ lives in your heart now. That you've, had, that you've had Christian experience now. Right? And that's, so if you're reading this, and, and the, you know, how many you read and kind of tried to grapple with the Christian experience part here, but he says Christian experience is good for what? It's, it, can, it can't be the foundation. The foundation has to be what happened in 2,000 years ago. It has to be what happened on the cross. It has to be what Jesus did. But Christian experience, he says, kind of confirms what Jesus did. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes brings to us Jesus, connects us to Jesus in faith and in baptism and in the Lord's Supper and in worship and in Christian fellowship and in giving of gifts and all the different things that Christ does to connect us to him through his spirit. But in our experiences then aren't the basis of any of that. Jesus Christ is the basis of it, and the Holy Spirit is our connection to every age that comes, connecting them to Jesus Christ. But what the liberals are trying to do is say, well, we don't need that actual happening. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, at best, if Jesus died and rose from the dead. What matters is that you experience something like that. Right? That you have an experience with the risen Jesus. Right? That he's changed your life. And that you join the right you know, social causes and so on. Um, what's, what's the problem there? You guys kind of see the disconnect of the liberal position? When, when what Mason's trying to put his finger on and say, hey, listen, you don't get to do this. <laughs> Can we articulate it back to me? I mean, your, your faith is only as good as, like, the object you put it in. That's what you're putting it in. I mean, if there's nothing there, what good is your faith? Right. Sure. Um, so if there's no actual object of our faith, the Jesus who really did live, 
Jesus who really did die a cursed death on the cross and so on, the whole you know, story of the gospel that Christ has done, if that didn't really happen, what Paul argues specifically about this, right? About the resurrection in particular. Hey, if Jesus didn't really come back from the dead, we're of all people the most pitiable. We're wasting our lives, right? We should be eating and drinking and being merry or doing something else entirely uh, or, or at least be old covenant Jews and waiting for something. But if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, the jig's up. Christianity is a sham, Right? And you get liberals 20 centuries later, 19 centuries later, saying it doesn't matter if Jesus came back from the dead, so long as you've had an experience and you can kind of, you know, operate in these Christian circles and do the right things. Um, yeah. So we see that there's a removing Christianity from not only its historic foundation, but its absolutely necess- necessary foundation, without which there isn't Christianity. Right? That's, I think, the whole point of what Mitch is trying to say is this isn't. Christianity. This is something different. It looks the same in certain ways. It sounds the same in a lot of ways, but it's not the same. And that's an important reality for us to keep in mind. Okay, that's the Christian experience in the Bible. I thought that was interesting because uh, I found a similar mentality among many Christians that aren't really liberals or don't, you know, they don't disbelieve the Bible and so on. They just kind of don't care. <laughs> they just kind of don't care what happened to Jesus beyond saying, sure, he lives and he lives in my heart. And praise the Lord. And I said, okay, praise the Lord, now grow up. Right? That's fine. And it's fine to be a babe when it's time mm-hmm. to be a babe. But, you know, this, and he has this line in here that uh, you can make a trial of it today. You can look at the biblical history. You can look at what, what the Bible says happened. And you can make a trial of it. You can figure out, you know, is, is there evidence of this and that sort of thing. Uh, but Christian experience is not the basis of any of that. Right? It just receives what the church has ministered, the Bible ministers uh, to us and... Um, yeah, any, any thoughts on Christian experience? And have you run into that some friends who just don't seem to matter or don't, they don't seem to care? Don't seem to think it matters. Uh, the foundations, the actual historical realities that Christianity is rooted in. Right? Christianity is not just a collection of ideas or ideals or morals. Well, in, in the hands of the liberals, that's kind of exactly what it is. It is a historic reality. Jesus came to this earth. He lived and died on this earth. He rose from the dead on this earth, and he left this earth saying he's going to come back. Those things occurred in history. And Christianity is nothing if those things didn't occur. Any, any thoughts on that? Pretty straightforward. It's funny how a bunch of educated, I mean highly educated, Ivy League degree people can miss that. Right? Saying, well, that doesn't really matter because there's a historic reality that's going on called the church, and we can kind of plug into that, and there's lots of money and influence, like I said, and things like that. We can work in this realm, even though we don't really believe what's going on. There's a book written by John A.T. Robinson, I think his name is, uh, called Honest to God. He's a kind of early, early 20th century scholar, and he, he basically wrote this. We don't really believe any of this stuff. We sit there every Sunday, and we, we recite the creed, but we don't believe a word of it. <laughs> this is what we believe, and we don't believe that stuff. So anyway, that's a, that's a guy kind of coming clean, saying, yeah, and this is after, after Machen. Saying, he nailed us, right? We, we don't believe this stuff. We just hold the forms because it's valuable for us to hold the forms for different reasons. Okay. Any, uh, any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, good. So all these statements seem to, these, all these statements imply a degree of knowledge. You know, there's, they're saying some fact, like that guy, the one you just mentioned, Seem to make some fact like, oh really? You've never found anybody that believed it. Every you put everybody in that whole basket, 
Oh, I don't know if he was an antagonist. But it no, like no, he was one of them. He is a liberal, saying this is what we believe. Yeah, he's a liberal. Yeah. I'm saying he's a he's against. He's saying yeah. that he just lumped, he has knowledge. He's claiming to know facts and, and putting everybody into the basket. Nobody believes it. What? I guess you haven't looked very hard. There you go. But, or or you know, looked in the right place. They all claim to have some knowledge, but they don't even explore. Well, what's and the philosophers, the Kant's, and all the rest of them, Heidegger's. They all claim to have all these long words, but what's the end? Where's the end? What's your end game? What, what, what's the end? what does it mean to you? And if it doesn't mean anything, why are you putting up? Let's go drink and be happy and marry and kill and murder and, or do whatever we want to do. Sure. Yeah, I mean, certain ideas follow from Where's the rejection know? of truth. Well, right. Um, so, yeah, you're into that. There's no, there's no truth. So what, why are they even bothering with the – why is there – Speed laws, hospitals, why yeah. is there any of that stuff? If, if yeah, there's yeah. no truth. Good. Well, ask them. Read them. They'll have some ideas for you. And, and, and the question, though, is, is, are there, is there a sufficient basis for you to command people how to live based upon your humanistic, you know, anti-theistic worldview? And I think, no, you can't no, do it. No. But uh, we'll get there later. Other thoughts? Thank you. Yes. Go here first. Oh, over here. Yes. Um, okay, kind of wide. So that's, that's a little bit like just winds of doctrine, Christianity and winds of doctrine. Whatever is blowing, whatever is the thing, okay, we're that. We're Christians in that. So we want to be careful of that as well. And I think, again, historic Christianity, looking at the creeds and the Bible, keeps us from those problems, even though maybe it allows us to learn things from the winds that are blowing, things we might not have seen otherwise or you know, been clued into. Uh, any other thoughts? Yeah, Kim. Even some of, like, folks... Well, even though we, we talked to the Mormons yesterday and they were, you know, they believe in a historic Jesus. And they, I think they, they, they would say they believe in the resurrection and all that. Mm-hmm. However, like when we said, okay, well, tell us what you think, you know, you, you know what your, the gospel is or whatever. The first thing they went to was, well, I have a testimony. Mm-hmm. That, right. So the first thing he shared that was supposed to, like, impact us is his experience. Yeah, okay, good. That's and interesting. I, I thought... But how often, honestly, what what kind of, have you had training in evangelism from whatever where that's kind of it? You need to be able to give your testimony, bam, that's evangelism. And it's like, well, my testimony is testimony of another testimony, (laughs) of the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want to be able to express how Jesus has impacted me. That's important to me. Uh, But it's not the gospel, but it is a road to the gospel. I think we need to just keep that straight. Our testimony is not the gospel. The gospel is our testimony about Jesus, what he's done, and then how it's impacted us. And both those go together. They're not enemies, but we don't want to mistake one for the other. Uh, so we want the, the gospel is the testimony about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. So, uh, and yeah, Mormons do a great job of bearing their testimony, and that's what they've been trained to do, and I think all the evangelicals similarly. Uh, okay, so we'll move on to plenary inspiration. 
is the word plenary inspiration, that phrase, new to anybody? Is it kind of a new one? It shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> it shouldn't be. It, doesn't, it probably doesn't come up very often, which is why it seems new, or that the word doesn't come up very often. The concept is certainly, I think, readily available in most evangelical Bible-believing churches. This is kind of how we think about the Bible. So what is plenary inspiration? What's meant by that, that phrase? You'll usually hear, by the way, plenary and verbal inspiration. Those, those two go together. Uh, they're not the same thing, but they're, they're different kind of focuses, I guess, on, on what inspiration is. Plenary inspiration, anybody? He kind of gives it right before he says it. We can read his definition anyway. Which is on page 62, thanks. Okay, so the last kind of sentence of this third paragraph, second full paragraph. The latter doctrine means, that is plenary inspiration, that the Bible not only is an account of important things, but that it is an account it's, that the account itself is true. The writers, having been so preserved from error, despite a full maintenance of their habits of thought and expression, that the resulting book is the infallible rule of faith and practice. So, the idea of plenary inspiration is that the whole Bible is the Word of God. All of it. And, and, and as the Word of God, the writers are preserved from error, but the writers aren't over, overcome to the point where they're just like in a trance chanting or, or somehow mechanically dictating what God has them to say. They say it from their own resources, in their own context, in their own language, but God has preserved them from error in it. Okay? There's a preservation from error in the whole of the Bible, and plenary means whole. The whole thing. So, like, sometimes you'll go to a, a conference and there'll be a plenary speaker. You'll have breakout sessions and there'll be the plenary speaker. Well, the plenary speaker is speaking to the whole of the group. That's the idea there. And so plenary inspiration is inspiration of the whole of the Bible. And inspiration uh, meaning that it's free from error. It's, it, and because it's free from error, it's, it's unique among books and is the only rule, the only infallible rule for faith and practice in the Christian church. Now, that's a doctrine that has been held to all the way back. All the way back. I mean, there's certainly people who question it. No, I mean, there's, there's no doubt there. Um, and he gets to that in just a moment. Not just the liberals who not only question it, but absolutely doubt it and oppose it. But even well-meaning Christians who aren't sure, who kind of, you know, are, have questions about different parts of the Bible, or maybe that there are errors in it and things like that, right? So there's, there's room, I think, for believers to work on these things and think about them, he kind of separates that out from what's going on with the liberals and historic Christianity. Okay, so let's, let's, let's look into that. So what is the straw man that the liberals set up when it comes to, uh, when we say plenary inspiration, or the inspiration of the whole Bible, that the, the authors are kept free of error and produce the truth of God? What's the, what's the straw man that's argued and then thrashed? It's always fun to thrash a straw man. Yeah. So he has like the dictation and the mechanical words that uh, he doesn't really. Anyway, he, he gives a little bit of explanation about what that means, and maybe it's it's uh, clear enough. But when we talk about mechanical inspiration or dictation in inspiration, we mean that the Holy Spirit overcomes the author, right? That it's not out of the author's own resources and mind and words and context that he's writing, but he just simply is overcome and just spits out what God said to spit out. Right? Irrespective of context, irrespective of language, whatever else, he just spits out what God said to spit out. Boom, 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 A, B, C, D, and it's all there. 
but the biblical doctrine, I mean, you, you, I mean, you see it when you read the Bible. It doesn't take very long to, to find out that Isaiah is not in the same context as the Apostle Paul. That Isaiah spoke within the historical context and with particular language from his own resources and in his own experience. But So we affirm all that, that the, the biblical writers are in their, own, in their own world, speaking their own language from their own minds, but that God preserved them from error. Not that God forced them to write things they didn't know or whatever and things like that. And do, do you see the difference? So one, in one, one sense, the human personality is virtually erased from the process of Scripture writing. Right? The, and on the other one, this is a Christian one, the issue of personality and context is embraced, but the affirmation is made that the, the product that they came up with is God's own word, and therefore free of errors um, and indispensable to the church as its rule, its only rule of faith and practice. Okay, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a sidestep. And maybe there are people out there who actually teach mechanical dictation uh, as far as a, a theory of inspiration. Uh, it's everyone that I've read, everyone that I've read has rejected that. And I did a master's thesis on this, right, on, on Calvin and Turretin and their doctrine of Scripture. And that's one of the things that people like to especially accuse Turretin of, because he's the scholastic, he's the academic one, the rationalist, between the two, uh, that he would hold some kind of mechanical dictation, but absolutely not. He doesn't either. Nobody does. Uh, you have a hard time finding it. It's like, it's like houndstooth. Go get it um, if you can find it. But that's, that's what liberals were saying in his day. Say, oh, yeah, you guys that think of plenary inspiration, you don't even take into account the historical like, realities and the uh, intellectual realities and the verbal realities of each scripture writer. And Mason's going, yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's just, it's just a lie. It's just a deception. Um, okay. How does traditional Christianity differ from that of liberals, and what is the foundation of authority? What's the foundation of authority for traditional Christianity? And that may not be a simple answer. Uh, and then we'll compare it to the kind of the foundation of authority for the modern liberal back in the early 20th century. So what is the foundation for Christian, historic Christianity of authority? What's that? Okay, so we have the Bible, uh, and maybe... Maybe a finer point on that is, is God speaking in the Bible. Right? This is God's word, and based upon the authority of God, we have revelation here. Now, you will find Christians who say, well, we also have God speaking in tradition. Right? That's God's word, too. We think of Rome, and, and especially as it develops into the uh, Counter-Reformation and so on, and puts a finer point on Rome's teaching. But, you know, there, there are dual deposits of, of revelation by God within Roman theory of revelation, a deposit in the Bible, which is pretty close, actually. They're the closest you'll find to dictation. <laughs> it's interesting enough when it comes to uh, Roman Catholic doctrine of inspiration, but also the living reality of the church, and these are both deposits of revelation according to the Roman Catholic doctrine. The Reformers came and said, well, there are certainly those things, but they're not on par. Right? The, the, the traditions of the church really are there. Paul really did go around and plant church and say, do it this way. Right? There's a living tradition of the church, but that's always under the authority of God speaking in his word. The scripture always rules over the church. The written word is all the way back. The, the written prophets always had the authority in the church. The church looking back to those writings and so on. So the historic Christianity looks to God, his authority, in the word, in the scripture. What is the authority of the liberal? What is the, you chase it around and figure out what, the, what Mason's doing there? They could say, well, listen, we don't, we don't think this whole written deal is all that great, but we do hold to the authority of Jesus. Right? The authority of Jesus is what we have. And then we all say, great, that's good. That's all Christian-like, right? I mean, who's going to doubt the authority of Jesus? They sound really good. But when it comes down to it, 
Um, how do you figure out what Jesus did and said? <laughs> Pretty much, that's it. Uh, well, we have we have a witness to it. Uh, a number of witnesses that are collected into one book called the Bible. And uh, the Bible tells us what Jesus did. And they say, well, you know, we believe in the historical Jesus, not necessarily the one that was written in the, in the scriptures. I say, well, then I guess you get to make them up then when it comes down to it. And, uh, and, and speaking of making it up, uh, anyone heard of the Jesus Seminar? It's been a while. Uh, I don't know if they still meet or not. Um, but they used to go through this, you know, a bunch of egghead scholars and, you know, huge degrees and lots of information, to be sure. And they just go through and rank, <laughs> rank the New Testament text as far as if it really is the Bible or not. Just on their own. Kind of, it's, it's, anyway, it's, it's a really goofy thing. Uh, and they just kind of cut the New Testament up and take the parts they like and leave the parts they don't, which is what liberalism has always done. I mean, sinners always do that, let's put it that way. We always take things we like and deny things we don't. Uh, but as Christians, we're kind of committed to the book. Whatever God has said is what we must believe and do. Right? That's the, the, and we might bicker about what God has said, but we're not going to bicker about the fact that God's speaking and we need to understand it and obey. Right? Um, where the, the liberal, the modernist, isn't looking to the scripture for that, isn't looking to that historic revelation for that. They're looking to the historic Jesus who lives in their hearts, right? And you can imagine from that point on, okay, well, the idolatry is obvious, so they're going to go the way they're going to, to go. And he runs through, he says, okay, well, if you say you take Jesus seriously as your authority, then what has Jesus said? And, of course, they don't take that seriously. Like, for instance, and I think I asked it in here. Yeah, at the very bottom. What was Jesus' life purpose? There's a good text that he brings up in that. Did you guys find that one? It's only scripture in the whole... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. It's this whole messianic reality here from Mark, Mark 10. According to the shortest, and if modern criticism is to be accepted, the earliest of the Gospels. So again, with Machen, we know we're working with someone who knows his way around the scholarship of the Bible. Right? He's not just kind of familiar with the Bible. He's read it a couple of times. He like knows the scholarship around. It. He's taken years and years to familiarize himself with the, the, the scholarship. So he's, he's, you know, he's a, a worthy uh, proponent of, of what these, these modern critics say. Anyway, they say the Son of Man, the Bible says, the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here the vicarious death is put as his life purpose. Such an utterance must, of course, be pushed aside by a modern liberal church. Right? So if, when Jesus says, here's what I've come to do, I haven't come to serve, I haven't come to be served. I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Okay, that's like what I'm doing here, folks. They say, oh, yeah, no, not really. He's a good example, and he's this, and he's that. They point to other things they like. And so what it, what it comes down to is they're just dishonest. They're just liars. And they're just lying to you, and they're lying to themselves. Some of them know they're lying, and they giggle their way to the bank. Sure, absolutely. There's never been a shortage of religious shysters. Okay, they've always been around. Uh, and they've been in the church, and here's an example of it. Uh, but I think the worst ones aren't them. I think the worst ones are the ones that lie to themselves and believe it. And lie to you and think they're telling the truth because they believe the lie that they've been sold. And I think there's plenty of that going on right around here. What's the purpose of Jesus? Well, he says so. He says so clearly and succinctly. And if you don't believe it, that's your problem. But what you shouldn't be doing is calling yourself a Christian and a follower of Jesus and saying the authority of my life rests in that man who, when he speaks, I don't believe him. Okay, we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but that's, that's what's going on. So, and, and again, I'll, I'll 
take that as a problem that we all share in, right? It's easy to point your fingers at the obvious inconsistencies of, of modernism, especially as Mason pulls them out and kind of shows us. But we really should be seeking those inconsistencies in our own hearts, because we do the same kind of stuff. We play the same kind of games. Right? There's stuff in the Bible we don't like. And so we kind of shy away from it. You know, even as we've been going through the book of Romans, there are plenty of things in the book of Romans that are hard doctrine. They're hard to teach. They're hard to understand. They're uncomfortable. But one thing is a, is a commitment to expository preaching is you can't get away from those things. You can kind of take it easy and move quickly, uh, you can do that kind of stuff, but, um, but you can't get away from it. You have to continually go through the text and deal with what it says. And that makes us have to deal with the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. Right? Not just our little soapboxes. And that's, again, that's, that's pretty easy to do. Let's read just the last two paragraphs here. I'll pause for any questions, though. A good, this is a good uh, summary, kind of, this chapter about the Christian view of the Bible and the liberal or modernist view of the Bible. Okay, so out of the, the paragraph before, let's talk about the, the, this idea that the liberal notion of the Bible ends in skepticism, right? Uh, sheer doubt, doubt of the Bible, doubt of Christianity, doubt of, of, of reality when it comes down to it. Here goes, the Christian man, on the other hand, finds in the Bible the very word of God. Let it not be said that dependence upon a book is a dead or artificial thing. The Reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible, yet it saw the world aflame, it set the world aflame. Dependence upon the word of man would be slavish, but dependence upon God's word is life. Dark and gloomy would be the world if we were left to our own devices and had no blessed word of God. The Bible to the Christian is not a burdensome law, but the very Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It is no wonder, then, that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon shifting emotions of sinful men. And that's a happy place, I think, to end it as far as clarity goes. And that's, I think, what he's shown. is like, hey, you say you're dependent upon Jesus, his authority, but it really amounts to your own emotions what you feel, and then how you can kind of project that back into Jesus or handpick certain, certain passages that, that, that help you with your feelings and get you where you want to go. But that's really no authority for our life and practice in the church, as important as your emotions are to you, uh, we might say, right? or as important as my emotions are to me. The Bible is the authority in the church, and that's something Christianity has historically agreed on. There hasn't been disagreement about that, and liberalism wants to be Christianity and disagree on that point. And Mason's trying to say, look, here's another point at which liberalism is not Christianity. It runs the other direction. So, um, and so the, the next week as we get back into this, uh, the doctrine of the Christ or Messiah will be, a, you know, what, what is the Christ and how does historic Christianity teach and understand Messiah? And how does liberalism teach and understand the messianic reality of Jesus the Son of God, which, of course, is going to be entirely different as well. Uh, so, anyway, any, any, any closing thoughts? There's maybe some clarity in there. I don't know. Uh, thinking about the Bible and what God's given us and how, how we, as people, mis mishandle that, misunderstand it. Um, but we'll thank God for the Word, and we'll break it up. And